and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in this episode I'm joined by the author of the hugely popular Diary of a Wimpy Kid book series for children. They've sold more than 194 million copies worldwide and there have been four Diary of a Wimpy Kid feature films and our guest has been named as one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world. It is of course the fabulous Jeff Kinney. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for having me here. It's our pleasure. You are one of the most influential people in the world and you're here with us on the Penguin Podcast. That's fantastic. Now, Jeff has brought along a number of objects that have influenced his life and his writing. So, Jeff, tell us a little bit about Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway. What's happening with Greg and the Heffley family at this point in time? Well, in The Getaway, Greg Heffley and his family decide to go on a vacation to an island resort instead of stay home and deal with the stresses of the holidays. So they go back to a place where the parents had honeymooned. So, you know, and the parents are looking for kind of a romantic revival in a way. And, of course, everything goes upside down, which as, <laughs> we wouldn't as things do. have it any do. other way. Right. Now, this is the 12th book in the series. But by the 10th book, you were finding them hard to write, I believe. Why was that? Well, I'm trying to cover childhood from every angle. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like I'm sort of running out of space in a way. You know, it's hard not to paddle in the same waters, especially since my books are really seasonal. But I think that's sort of my job is to, to keep trying to find areas of childhood that I haven't explored because I feel like I'm not really writing about this one specific character, Greg Heffley. I feel like I'm I'm writing about childhood in general. Mm. So happily you have continued your writing and you're on a world tour now. This is the last leg, I believe. What have you discovered about the Wimpy Kid fans globally? It's actually kind of hard to tell them apart in a way. I often think that if I couldn't see them, I wouldn't really know where I was in the world because kids seem to react to the books in the same way. They seem to know know them in the same way. I think uh, this goes to my earlier point that these are the stories of childhood and that childhood really is, by and large, a universal condition. Now, you are one of the few authors worldwide, including greats such as J.K. Rowling, whose series have passed the 150 million sales mark. Yet you didn't initially consider yourself as a children's author, did you? Why is that? In ways, I still don't consider myself as a children's author because I wrote the books originally for grown-ups. I spent about eight years working on Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and I really had the humor section of the bookstore in mind for the books. I didn't even know there was a middle grade section. I wasn't aware of it at all. But I was introduced to comics by my father. So I always thought of comics as kind of a grown-up thing. I kind of don't consider them as children's books because I think a lot of parents will agree adults can relate to this stuff. The humor is pretty sophisticated and it's good because you want your kids to sort of be a party to that. So... Without any further ado, let's dip into Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway, read by Dan Russell. Here, Greg discovers his family's plans for Christmas. Mom and Dad made an announcement. They said that this year we were going to skip Christmas and all go to Isla de Corrales instead. When I asked how were we going to get our gifts to the resort, Mom said the trip was our gift. I thought that sounded like a terrible idea, and I was surprised Dad was on board with it. He usually doesn't like to spend a lot of money, and I was sure this resort was going to cost a fortune. But he said he was sick of the cold weather, and he wanted to escape to some place warm. 
Personally, I don't have a problem with cold weather. In fact, generally speaking, the worse it is outside, the happier I am. I figured Manny and Roderick would help me talk some sense into Mom and Dad, and we'd put a stop to this idea. But those guys weren't any help at all. They were doing things like wearing shades at breakfast. So I had to accept that we weren't going to have a normal Christmas at home. But what I really didn't like was that we had to fly to this place. I'd never been on a plane before, and I wasn't crazy about the idea of locking myself in a metal tube. Nobody else seemed worried, though. And two weeks later, on a night when we should have been hanging up our stockings and sitting around the fire watching Christmas specials, we were packing our suitcases for this island getaway. An extract from Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway by Jeff Kinney. Do you like hearing the audiobooks or do you hear them at all? <laughs> it, it's weird. I haven't heard that particular performer. So it's good, actually. It's strange to hear my words read by somebody else. I bet. You know? Well, what we haven't mentioned is that these books are 50% text and 50% comic. And you've chosen to keep Greg the same age in each book in the tradition of other comic book heroes like Charlie Brown. So why is that? The reason that I keep the characters the same age is because we don't like for our cartoon characters to grow up or change. Mm. Like, we don't want to read about uh, Charlie Brown's second marriage, for example, or saving up for retirement. That's what we like about our cartoon characters is that they are consistent. And I'm thinking about Donald Duck and, and Mickey Mouse and Bart Simpson, and uh, their lives just kind of go on repeat in a way. And we, we like to sort of check in on those characters. I totally get that. So you've brought along a number of objects with you, which you have here. So tell us a bit about the first one. This okay. is a comic. This I is believe. a comic. Yes. And most of the objects that I've brought in actually relate to the writing of The Getaway. My first object here is an old comic book. It's Donald Duck in The Gilded Man, written by Carl Barks. Carl Barks was really my favorite cartoonist of all time. My father collected his works when he was a kid in the 1950s and 60s. And then when my father went away to the Naval Academy and off to Vietnam, his parents actually threw away all his old comics. So they thought he wouldn't like to keep reading them. <laughs> it's sad, I know. Yeah. But then my father in the 1970s and 80s recollected all of the comics because they started printing them again. And so I got to read them for the first time ever. And my frame of reference for so many things, for uh, religion, psychology, history, geography, architecture, comes from these comics, these very specific comics by Karl Barks. So when did you actually start cartooning? Was that something that you did as a child growing up? Did you like to doodle or how did that come about? I liked to draw as a kid, and I had and have ADD, so in class I'd always be drawing. I started with doodling in class, and I got a lot of praise from my parents and from, you know, from my friends mm. for my drawing. And, of course, once you get praise, you keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. How did Greg Heffley come about? Were the stories in your head first, or were the doodles of him and his family there 
first or was it sort of a mutual symbiosis? Well, Greg Heffley came about because I failed to achieve my original goal, which was to become a newspaper cartoonist. I spent Aren't about... Aren't you glad of it now? <laughs> Who wants I... to be that in these horrible political times? I know. Times? It's, t- it's tough for <laughs> newspapers now. And it, it's so sad to me because I love newspapers and I love that ritual of every morning going downstairs and reading the comics pages. So it, it, that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big sad loss for me. Mm. But of course, my timing was, was really good in terms of failing to be become a newspaper cartoonist and then creating this new idea of of a kid who draws cartoons in a book. Greg Heffley came about after you'd failed at becoming a cartoonist. Was this kind of a recent thing? Because you said it took eight years to actually make it into print or was it something you just came back to when other jobs didn't work out. How did it happen? In university, I I worked on a comic strip called Igdu for about four years. Mm. I took that out into the world after I graduated with my criminal justice degree, by the way. Ah, Uh, So you could be doing crime thrillers next. So I spent three years trying to get syndicated, failed, came up with the idea for Diary of a Wimpy Kid, worked on it for eight years. And then on my ninth year, I got it published. Wow, and thank goodness you did. Well, let's hear another extract of the diary of a wimpy kid, The Getaway. Here, Greg tries to remedy one of his many mishaps. The only thing I needed that the shop didn't have was socks. My right sock was still soaking wet from stepping in that puddle, so I went to the bathroom to wring it out in the sink. When I was done, my sock was still damp, and I really didn't want to put it back on my foot. The bathroom had one of those high-powered hand dryers, and that gave me an idea. I put my sock over the warm air outlet, and it worked really good. I couldn't wait to get back home and start making some money from this idea. I figured I could make a killing on rainy days with one of these machines. The only problem with the hand dryer in the airport bathroom was that it was a little too powerful. My sock started smoking, and then it went flying around and around and landed in the urinal. I decided I'd just get a new pair of socks at the resort because there was no way I was going to wear something I had to fish out of a urinal. When I came back from the restroom, they were making an announcement at our gate. I figured they were ready to start boarding the plane, but they were just letting us know there was another delay. And it went on like that for the rest of the day. Apparently, this storm was causing problems everywhere, and the plane we were supposed to fly out on was stuck at some other airport. I was starting to worry that my electronic device was going to run out of juice while I was on the plane, so I looked for a place to charge it. But I guess everyone else was thinking the same thing. The only available socket was in an awkward place, just outside the ladies' room. But when your battery is at 15%, you got to do what you got to do. As we heard in that clip, boredom is the perfect starting point, isn't it, for a bit of slapstick. A lot of the experiences you write about, are they sort of real happenings that have occurred? Yeah, and these days I'm spending a lot of time on planes and in airports. and, And, of course, comedy really is just tragedy plus time. When I read the first third of this book, it actually kind of stresses me out. I'm like, (laughs) are there any jokes in here? I can't even tell. You know, is this funny? I can't tell if it would be funny to a kid. So It's the happenings that are funny, though, and they're funny because they're relatable as well. And you can think to your own scenario where, I don't know, the spider ran across the bathroom (laughs) and it's so relatable. You have two teenage sons. 
is anything of your sons in the Heffley family, the Roderick or Greg? Not as much as you would think. I really wish that my kids had just given me, you know, tons of material because it would make <laughs> writing these books so much easier. But both of my kids are athletes. They love basketball. Their lives They're center around basketball. Kids. <laughs> not really. My younger son did do something that was very Greg Heffley like when he was in preschool. They had a song at preschool called the Clean Up Song where everybody sings, clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere, clean up, clean up. Clean up, everybody do your share. And uh, Will came home and he said, yeah, when they, when, you know, when we start singing the clean up song, he goes, I just sing the song and walk around like, you know, everybody else is doing all the work. I'm just singing <laughs> the song. I'm like, that's exactly like something that Greg Heffley would do and say. Has that made it into any of the it books? It did, yeah. yeah. So Roderick is the annoying teenage brother and both your boys are teenagers. Yes. They're not similar at all to Roderick. Then if they're not Greg? I guess my older son, Will, is a bit like Roderick in that he can, you know, sometimes uh, use his power against Grant, you know, who's a much uh, smaller guy. So I think that anybody who has ever had an older sibling who's a teenager knows what it's like to have a Roderick in their house. Is it fun finding ways for him to taunt his sibling? Or do you find that it's kind of frustrating trying to think of more and more things? Because it's hips per minute in that book. It's like gag, gag, gag. There's a lot packed in there. Yeah, I usually have about 350 jokes per book. That's what I draw from. And that's how I write, actually. I yeah. write my gags first. And then once I get to the 350 mark, then I can start writing the manuscript. Oh, so you sort of string them together yeah. and the story forms around them. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that my narratives in the first several books aren't especially strong because the priority of the books, in my mind, is humor, is that if they're not funny, then they don't have a reason to be. But that's kind of the beauty of the books. It's all the minutia that generates the funny stuff, and often narrative can get in the way of that it, it to some extent. Yeah. I think the regular way to write a, a book like this would be to conceive of the plot first and then try to add humor into it, which I think gives you a better narrative, of course, but a less funny book. Yeah. As long as the book is entertaining, then that's all you really want. But I have a tendency sometimes in my books to have lots of flashbacks. So yeah, sometimes nothing really happens at all in the books. It's just a bunch of moments of Greg remembering preschool or remembering fifth grade. But you know what? In life, often nothing that much really happens. <laughs> but finding the humour in it is the brilliance of the books. Thank you. So let's move on to your next object, which is an airplane sickness bag, I believe. That's right. Have I, you ever? Have you ever thrown up on a plane? <laughs> I have indeed. It was it was kind of a, a very strange situation. I got onto a plane, and I wasn't feeling that good to begin with. And mm. this is in my adult life. And for some reason, I got it in my head that I hope nobody orders tomato juice. Right? <laughs> I just I just thought that that would put me over the edge. And I was <laughs> tipping so, point. Right? So I actually uh, put my head down you know, on the seat in front of me. And then the person to my right ordered like three cups of uh, of tomato oh, juice no. and they passed right under my nose. And then my memory is that 
then there was a whole cart of of tomato juices <laughs> com, coming down the aisle, like like, a bad like like levels and rows and <laughs> columns of tomato juices, and and that was that was it for me. I oh. ran to the back of the plane, found a sickness bag, and and that was that. Was it a long haul or a short haul? <laughs> it wasn't that long of a flight. I'm sure phew. people were wishing I I wasn't on their flight. Oh, few, few, few. Uh, you, you so you mentioned you need 350 gags for each book, yeah. which is a lot of gags it where is. you just slip that in there nonchalantly. Do they just come to you in everyday life? I used to draw in my childhood. I spent about four years writing down every funny thing that happened to me as a kid. But these days I have to come up with these gags from whole cloth. So there's this technique I use. It's developed by this Israeli group called systematic inventive thinking that is a set of tools that helps you really mechanically come up with new ideas. It's been huge in my life. In fact, it even recently, like last year, it might have taken me four months to write all of my jokes. This year, I only had two weeks and I had to do something radical. So I use this technique and every joke in the getaway comes from using that technique. But what is that technique or is that your secret? (laughs) It's complicated, but I'll try to keep it short. The idea is that, first of all, you take something and break it down to components. So for example, an airplane is easy to break down to components. It's you have your seats, you have your passengers, you have your air sickness bags, et cetera, et cetera. And then what you do is you apply four tools to each object. So for example, subtraction, division, multiplication, uh, and something called task unification. So just using subtraction, for example, Mm. considering a seat in an airplane, you say, what if I took away a seat. What does that mean? So is Greg's seat broken? Is it literally not there? Uh, does somebody else have his seat? Do two people have the same seat? You think of all these conceptual you, ways to yeah. break it down. And ultimately what I got to for this book is, okay, what's the worst thing that would happen to Greg? Is that, oh, he goes to the bathroom and comes back to his seat and his seat is gone because somebody else is sitting in it. And who's the worst person to be sitting in your seat? How about (laughs) a baby that was crying and is now calm because they're asleep in Greg's seat. So, you know, that that one joke came from from using those tools and I, I use them all the time. So what was, say, multiplication of the seeds? Multiplication. Well, we already have multiplication in a way. Oh, uh, because of the first class seat, the extra seat. And and, also, oh, I get it. Right? This is such a clever strategy. Yeah. And so there we can really amplify the class division. So, you know, of course, the the first class situation. Let's just explain to to people that don't know. So Greg's father has got a seat in first class, meanwhile, on this family holiday. So basically, they decide that they're going to take it in turns to swap back and forth. Right. And Roderick, Greg's older brother, eventually gets the first class seat and he promptly lays the seat flat and goes to sleep on this uh, on this red eye flight to the resort. And then Greg wants in on that, but he's barred from from crossing the threshold by the first class stewardess. So your process involves as well, doesn't it? Like long walks and bike rides and you've tried all sorts of swings and hot tubs and and you know did any of that work I've tried everything every day uh, let's say on the last book mm. what I would do is I'd start my morning by taking a walk and I'd walk away from my home and keep walking away uh, because I found that if I take a round trip that once I get to the halfway point and turn around my brain sort of, sort of shuts off so I have to walk in one direction sometimes I'll walk for as much as uh say 3 or 4 hours uh-huh. 
I live in Massachusetts in the U.S., and sometimes I'll walk into a whole different state. Um, so then do you just Uber it back home? I, mean, <laughs> I have an assistant who is very kind and patient with me, and I'll call her up and I'll say, Anna. I'm in a field right? <laughs> miles away. I literally sometimes say, you know, there's a rock and there's a tree, you know, <laughs> come find me. But those methods don't really help that much. Sometimes I'll walk. I really will walk for two or three hours, and I won't come up with a single joke. So this uh, this new tool set that I'm using is— So how long have you been using the new tool set? Just this past year. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. But in okay. a sense, I've been using it for much longer. For example, uh, I wanted to be a newspaper cartoonist, but then I subtracted what the most important thing seemed to be, which was the newspaper, and I became a cartoonist without a format. So you can see these patterns everywhere you go once you learn the tools. I'm going to start using your tools. And didn't you also, you planned to fly to Florida because you thought that might give you some sort of inspiration. And then you changed your mind on the way to the airport. And then you ended up in Iceland without your clothes. I knew I had to go away to come up with jokes. Mm. I, I knew I had to leave my family for a time, but I hadn't planned it out. So I went to the airport, you know, thinking I'm going to go someplace warm and comfortable. And I was planning on going to Florida or Puerto Rico. And on the way to Corrales. Right. (laughs) And on the the book, if you don't know. Anyway, carry on. (laughs) That's okay. And on the way to the airport, I decided, you know what? I've never been to Iceland. And so I got the last ticket and showed up with all of my beach (laughs) with all my resort wear. Had to buy a coat at the airport, had to buy, you know, other clothes. So, uh, which is kind of in the book, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So that came from that experience. Yes, it did. Yeah. Okay. Now, speaking of flying, we're going to fly back into the audiobook of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway, and in this extract, Greg struggles with the in-flight routine. I was already nervous about flying to begin with, and I didn't like hearing there might be an emergency. So when the safety video started, I paid attention. But as far as I could tell, I was the only person who did. Everybody else completely tuned out. The beginning of the video was just basic stuff, like how to fasten the seatbelt. But after that, it got serious. The video's narrator said that if there was a loss in cabin pressure, oxygen masks would drop from the ceiling. Well, I don't know what cabin pressure is, but I didn't like hearing that we might lose it. The people in the video didn't look bothered at all when the oxygen masks dropped down, though. In fact, they looked kind of happy about it. Then the video got even worse. The narrator said that in case of a water landing, we'd need to evacuate the plane. Now, I was really freaked out. I thought the whole point of an airplane was that it was supposed to stay in the air. The safety video said there were emergency exits on the plane, and the people sitting in the exit rows would need to open the doors so everybody could get out. The emergency exit was one row behind me, and I realized the people sitting there weren't paying attention to the video at all. So I got them to put down their magazines and listen. (laughs) So your books are known for getting reluctant children to start reading. I've got to say, my little boy, who's a bit young for your series, he totally got into your books from the pictures, I think. Is that part of your goal? 
Yeah, I think that what I like about my books is that when a kid opens up one of my books, they can see it it looks like fun. And that's what we want for our kids is for them to think of reading as fun, associate it with pleasure. So I like it that there's a mix of text and pictures because the kids can feel like they're reading something that's accessible to them, Mm. but also something that has some meat to it, some some vegetables with their with their candy, I guess you could say. Totally, because let's face it, attention spans are on the decline these days. Do you think reading books has become less popular due to social media? Yeah, I think we're going through a change uh, unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime, for, for sure. I think that there's a lot of hope. I think it's our challenge as adults, as writers, to come up with entertainment that's worthy of kids' time. You know, I, I see kids stop and read the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, and that, that makes me feel proud. They're not on their screen. Screens don't always rule. Mm. Um, but I think it's it's on us, you know, to make sure that we're, we're writing well and that we're giving kids the right books. And do you think it helps with emotional development as well as just literacy? Yeah, something that's been kind of interesting to me is that a lot of kids who are autistic uh, seem to like my books. And, and their parents uh, come up to me at book signing and they say, these books are really good because my child can see the emotional reaction on the characters' faces. So there's this constant Mm. uh, feedback where the kids are getting insight into how the characters feel, which I think is kind of a nice um, element of these books. Definitely. Well, let's move on to your next object, which is, I didn't want you to bring the real thing into the studio, so it's actually a picture of a... It's a picture of a tarantula, right? Yeah, which looks... A big, hairy tarantula. Very realistic, (laughs) actually. I added this one in there uh, because of the get away. There's a moment where Greg uh, steps out of the shower at this luxury resort and he puts on his slippers and there's a tarantula in one of the slippers. And then Greg ends up jumping on top of the the sink and the tarantula is on the ground. So Greg is trying to figure out what to do. You know, he doesn't want to get down the floor with the tarantula, but what can you do? And I think most of us have had some sort of encounter with a bug or a rodent where it's a standoff. Mm. Of course, the human being is huge and, you know, (laughs) terrifying to the small object, but that critter really causes a lot of distress. Yeah. Now, we were just talking about keeping reading alive. You've got a bookshop in your hometown, is that right? I do, yeah. I I live in a little town called Plainville, Massachusetts, but we built a bookstore from the ground up, a three-story building in a colonial style. It's uh, one of the biggest joys of my life. Was that to give back to the town or was it have you enthused your town with reading? I have, but the reason that we created that bookstore was a very small reason, a very petty reason. Mm. My kids go to a school in a regional system, and the other towns are much better off than Plainville. Right. And so when the kids go to that school system, the, uh, mostly people look down on, on Plainville a bit. So I wanted to build a really nice building a that we could feel proud bigger, of. A better bookshop. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> You're it, just playing bookshop top trumps here, aren't I you? I know, yeah. So we, uh, so we built that. And all I wanted was for it to say the word Plainville on the side. And that that was the whole goal. But then we thought, you know what, a bookstore would be really nice. Nice. Okay, so back to the audiobook of The Getaway. And in this extract, Greg is struggling with his chores, even on holiday. I was definitely ready for a fresh start. So I put on my swimming trunks and headed for the door. But Mom said me and Roderick needed to make our beds and straighten up the room. I reminded Mom that we were on holiday 
and the maid service would handle that for us, but she said that we weren't going to live like animals just because we were on holiday. I told Mom that the best part of being on holiday was having someone else clean up after you, but Mom said that this week we were going to clean up after ourselves. Then she put the Do Not Disturb sign on the door so the maid wouldn't even come into the room. I asked Mom how we were supposed to get clean towels and sheets, and she said we'd wash them in the bathroom sinks the same way we were washing our clothes. So, Mom wasn't joking about us doing our own laundry. In fact, Manny was in the sink scrubbing a pair of Dad's underwear, and I'm pretty sure he was using Roderick's toothbrush to do it. The Getaway is a great title. So from hearing the Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway, it could almost be like a heist movie, although it implies a vacation. It has so many connotations, running away from a disaster. Do you come up with the stories first and then give them the titles? Sometimes the title shapes the stories. In fact, I think I have a good title for the next book, which I can't talk about right now. But I think I have a good title that will, will, will make that book really work. But The Getaway, I didn't have a title for it. I knew they were going to go to an island resort. But sometimes my titles have, have double meanings, and this one has a triple meaning. And you, you picked up on it already, which is it's three meanings. One is the getaway is a getaway is an island resort. Another is that the family is actually getting away from the holiday season. And then the third, it implies something sneaky. And the Hefleys are on the run for a lot of this book. So you said that you've got a really good title for your next book. Is that all you've got? Just the title and you're going to put the story around it? <laughs> what I've learned from making films is I've learned a lot about structure and storytelling. So my stories are getting a lot better. My narratives are getting a lot better because I'm basing them on good storytelling structure. So even as I think of the next book and the next title, I know what's going to happen at certain times just based on the premise. So you just mentioned there about the film adaptation. There have been four adaptations of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Another testament to your huge success. But when did Hollywood actually come calling then? How did that come about? Hollywood came calling too early in a way. My second book had just come out. And I was on a book tour where I was driving myself around and putting in really late night. I would go to bed at, at three in the morning and wake up at six in the morning and get back on the road. And Hollywood, when, when they come calling, they come uh, pretty aggressively and they don't like to get into a bidding situation. So they put the pressure on you and say, you know what, you have two hours to make this decision. And it's scary for a, a new author. And I felt yeah. like I was just getting started. So it was a little bit intimidating. Hollywood is arrogant. And so did you give them an answer in that two hours? I had kind of a funny situation there where I learned what I was made of, for better or for worse. If I needed a nap really bad and my lawyer said, you know, you have to decide right now. And if you don't decide, they are going to take it off the table, the offer off the table. And I said, I am going to take a nap. And if I wake up and the movie is gone, I'm going to live with that. <laughs> and that yeah, let the, let the nap decide. Yeah, and, that, and that nap was very worth it. So did, did you nap beyond the deal being taken off the table or, or is that the deal that you ended up with? The, I, I'm not going to say. Okay, you keep your cards <laughs> But I will say the, the deal that was offered there was uh, still on the table when I woke yeah. up. Yeah. So 
how involved do you actually get with the movie versions? Because I can imagine, like, they're your babies, these books. There must be a real sort of urge to just be a total control freak <laughs> over the whole thing. Well, Hollywood has good reason not to include authors in, in the process uh, because an author, especially if it's a really big budget movie, an author can really hurt a film by turning their their fan base against the, the film. So as an author, you kind of have to make a decision early on to either just sell your uh, work uh, like you would sell a, a pencil across a desk and then walk away mm. or to be as involved as you can. And I decided to be as involved as I could. So I, I really was there for about half of filming for each movie. And I also helped with the casting. I helped with the writing. And uh, it was a very edifying experience for me. I'm glad I got to live that life. I know I would want to if I were you. Anyway, time to move on to your next object, which is a suntan lotion. Well, it factors into the new book, uh, Roderick goes without suntan lotion and they go to a place where the family can swim with the stingrays and do some underwater exploration. And the family accidentally leaves Roderick behind. <laughs> and they don't realize it until like four hours later. So Roderick is out there just baking in the open sea. And so that's why I brought that in. <laughs> we were just saying before, you've got your bookshop and you live in a small town, but yet you're this global phenomenon. We mentioned that you're uh, one of the most influential people in the world, according to Time magazine. Does that still feel surreal? I mean, that is a proper big accolade, really. I, I was thinking about that the other day. I was in my bookstore. I had about four or five of my employees near the elevator bank, and we were talking about, I really wanted to put a monitor on the wall, like a screen. And they were just adamantly against it. Uh, finally, I said, I'm one of the most influential people in the world. Yeah, and I would I, be using that I can't even <laughs> I can't even convince my own employees <laughs> to let me put a screen on the wall. So I think uh, Time magazine might have gotten it wrong yeah. there. Not as influential as you thought. Okay, <laughs> right. well, let's go now to the final extract, unfortunately, from the audiobook of The Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway. And here, Greg lets his readers into a little secret. When I was little, I used to pee in the baby pool all the time. In fact, there's a framed photo of me in the family room using the pool as a potty. Mom says it's her favorite picture of me because I look so happy. But I've never told her why. One summer, they put some chemical in the pool that turned green if anyone peed. So that put an end to that. I needed to figure out a way to get Manny without touching the water, so I found a raft and a pool noodle and paddled out to him. But I only made it halfway across when a bunch of little kids decided it would be fun to climb onto my raft. I tried fighting them off with the noodle, but there were just too many of them. Then they teamed up to flip me over. Ugh. I got Manny out of the pool and then spent 20 minutes scrubbing every inch of my body in the outdoor shower. But five seconds after I finished drying off, I was wet again. The kids in the pirate ship figured out that if they plugged two cannons, they could get some serious range. That was Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Getaway by Jeff Kinney. What is it about Greg Heffley and his family that appeals to children readers, do you think? 
I think that kids can see themselves in these characters. I think that in a way the books are a mirror. Um, but Greg, of course, is really exaggerated in, in his shortcomings and his faults. So he is me, uh, but his his antics are are amplified. Do you find yourself in a situation ever in just life, you know, in the supermarket or whatever, and wonder, hmm, what would Greg do? Right. Has that sort of become a second nature thing to you? I think when I was thinking about writing The Getaway, I was thinking about Greg, how he would feel getting onto a plane. And for for us as adults, those who are lucky enough to travel, airplane travel is very mundane. But for Greg, it's all new. Mm. And so in this situation, I focused on the airplane safety video. And they start talking about what to do if the plane lands in the water. And that to Greg is just a horrifying thought. And he's even more upset because he looks around and nobody else seems to be phased at all. So it's fun to get into the head of a kid. And and sometimes I do do that when I'm out and about. Okay, well, let's go to your final object now, which is... It's a boombox. A boombox. Is that what they call it here? Yeah. So in Diary of Wimpy Kid, the getaway, Greg arrives at this resort, totally jet-lagged. Everybody's taking a red eye. And the first thing that happens is he wants to relax by the pool. But this guy, who's called the director of fun, won't allow that to happen. He starts playing loud music, gets everybody going in a conga line. It's really horrible for Greg and his family. But the reason I I introduced this object is because it's the idea of forced fun. You know, you go to one of these family places and it's just supposed to be fun all the time. But of course, it's very manufactured. I, I think there was a place in Disney World where they would have a New Year's Eve party every night. You know, so every night you feel like oh, you're ringing like in the a new... bad dream. Right? Oh. Imagine how the employees feel, yeah. you know, to go through this. I, I often imagine how they feel anyway, because they have to go around smi- smiling the whole time and being nice. And, you know, nothing can annoy them. I actually heard that one, <laughs> this is a true story, my friend's friend was working at Disney and they had to be in the Mickey Mouse suit Somehow they fell into this water and he got sacked because he took his head off. Because you're oh, not allowed, yeah. that's one of the rules, you're not allowed to take your head off. Don't but, leave the head But off. you would take your head off if you thought, I'm going to drown, <laughs> there's water cut. And he got sacked anyway. I actually have that joke in my last book where Roderick has to be the mascot at a restaurant. And the employee before him got fired because he not only had his head off, but he was also smoking. <laughs> you see? So, they, yeah, that, that's why the books are so good. They're also sort of true to life. They find these funny moments. How many books do you think that you have left in you for this series? I think about that a lot. I think about that because, of course, every creative endeavor has a lifespan. Like, I think a good television show is maybe eight years. And what I'm doing, it's a little bit different. It's a literary series, but it's also comics. So some of the best comics like uh, Peanuts went on for 50 years. I'd like to get to at least 20 because that would feel very substantial. But who knows? It might go on from there. So what is next for you? Are you already embarking on the next one? Or is it just the title so far? It's just the, the title. But the title is a lot. That gives us a theme. Like we can even, uh, the marketing team here can even start, start work. working. Before they <laughs> yeah. even know right. what the story is. It's been fantastic speaking to you. I've got a billion zillion more questions. But we will let you go. Thank you so much, Jeff Kinney. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Good, good. The Creakers by Tom Fletcher. Do you ever hear strange creaking noises at night? 
Ever wonder what makes these noises? Lucy Dunstan always did. And Lucy Dunstan is going to find out. She just needs to look under her bed. Dear grown-ups and kiddlings, my name is Tom and I wrote this book. I just want to check, are you sure you want to read it? Like, really sure? If you read my last novel, The Christmasaurus, then thank you very much, but it is my duty to warn you this book contains no flying dinosaurs, no Santa, no singing elves, thankfully, and zero marvellously magical flying reindeer. This book has something far stranger, far creepier, more stinky, sloppy, mucky and yucky than that. This book has creakers. I'm beyond excited for you to meet the creakers, and I know they're oozing with excitement to meet you too. After all, they've been spying on you from beneath your bed for a very long time. They know all about you already. Yes, you. And now it's time for you to hear their story, if you dare. When I was a kid, my dad used to tell me science fiction stories about aliens and monsters. They always fascinated me, and they ignited a passion for the unusual, the mysterious, and the unknown. The downside is that I'm 32 and still scared of the dark, or what's hiding in it. Some of the things that defined my childhood and ultimately my life were the things that scared me, from Ghostbusters to Gremlins, Cocoon to Flight of the Navigator, Close Encounters of the Third Kind to Thriller. The adrenaline rush and feeling of triumph that came after experiencing these things secured them a place in my heart forever. And now, with the Creakers, I think it's time to scare the kids again. We ride roller coasters to scare ourselves, knowing deep down we are in perfectly safe hands. I hope those who read this have a similar experience. I can't thank you all enough for your support and for giving me the opportunity to write a second novel. Thanks and good luck. The Creakers are waiting. Tom. The darkly magical latest story about the monsters under the bed from best-selling author of The Christmasaurus, Tom Fletcher, is available now in CD and digital download. It's perfect bedtime listening.